Welcome to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show. Today I'm here with Tony Isaacson. is a lifelong marine educator and shark-aware scuba instructor. He has devoted 30 years of his life in researching leafy sea dragon and the unique biodiversity of South Australia. And Tony is here with me today to talk about his passion. G'day, Tony. How are you going? Well, terrific, Ian. This is a wonderful opportunity to uh, share with you what uh, I know I should uh, commit at some stage in some form, but I'm relying nowadays on Facebook. Why are you passionate about nature and especially the ocean world? There's a very simple answer to that. To save my marriage, I voluntarily went to get some psychiatric help and I was diagnosed in my uh, late 50s with ADHD. So that might explain why as a child, I found people fairly boring and um, I would go off on any opportunity because in those days you could ride a bike from where I lived in South Australia only 10, 20 minutes and you're, you're in the bush. And I found the bush interesting, but I found that I would um, be more needing to be out at night because of the nocturnal animals. But when I put my head under the ocean, it was noisy, it was alive, it was colourful, and there was so much to look at. Was there a single event that you can remember that made you really care about the natural world? I gave that some thought tonight while I was getting ready, and um, I think I've got a formula for it. It's EWD cubed. And to demystify what that means is Eric Worrell, EW, uh, was a legend in my mind because most of what I was looking at when I was a kid was under rocks in the form of legless lizards and geckos and skinks and, and dragons. I think um, that was really the centre of my universe uh, until I was around about 10 years of age. So Eric Worrell was the um, the guy behind uh, the, the standard text and, and reference book at the time, Australian Reptiles, and he had the, uh, the Gosford Reptile Park. Yeah, up at Gosford, out west north of Sydney. And I visited the latest incarnation of that only a few days ago, a bit of a walk down memory lane. was very, very pleased to see the way they've documented pictorially and with storylines right from the very, very beginning. That aside, the, the D-cubed is demystified very easily. There's um, the three Davids. There's uh, David Attenborough, uh, David Suzuki and David Bellamy, uh, each with their own sort of... Um, version of uh, how to save the planet and uh, they were icons in my uh, world and um, you know I would uh, hear what they uh, said and and um, I've met all of them so um, it's uh, it's those influences that have really been um, in the background and of course uh, fast forward that that to today um, my mentors are people who don't feed sharks. They give them cuddles and strokes and they remove hooks from inside their jaws, uh, even between the gill rakers and the esophagus, if you can believe that, in a fully mature female um, tiger shark. So these are people who are um, an inspiration to me and I guess it's their influence on me that has me do what I do, and then what I do seems to inspire others. So it, it's um, it's a wonderful way to live. Sounds fantastic to me. One focus of your work has been the search for the leafy sea dragon. 
Can you tell us a story about this? Opposite Adelaide, on the other side of uh, the Gulf, is um, a little town called Port Vincent. My uh, uncle, Uncle Giovanni Ferrari, he was a keen net fisherman and he brought in a net at uh, Port Vincent and uh, on this occasion it had a live leafy sea dragon, the most awesome creature that I think I've ever put my eyes upon and and I was just absolutely amazed at this thing. And in the fullness of time, I became fascinated and, and became a shaker and mover with Dragon Search, which was a bit of an offshoot of uh, two organisations that, that I was closely associated with. And it's Reef Check Australia and the uh, Marine Aquarium Research Institute of Australia, which was born in Sydney under Professor Emmons' guidance. But then when I went back from Sydney uh, to Adelaide as an undergraduate at Flinders University, it became the Marine Life Society of South Australia. And over 30 years, we collected the data and put the point that not only the leafy sea dragon, but all of its relatives, the seahorses and pipe horses and pipe fish, they needed protection. And essentially the way we saved a lot of them from the the doom and gloom of extinction was uh, to ban beach netting where you'd have a, a family with a, a fibro shack down on the on the sand dunes along the entire seaboard of, of Adelaide. Oh, wow. And they would all have their little dinghies out there with their nets and they would row out and come back to shore and anybody who was available would drag these nets in. And sure enough, leafy sea dragons with a bycatch and their numbers were getting decimated. Oh, no. So now they are definitely in recovery. We've got the leafy sea dragons successfully representing the marine biodiversity of South Australia as the marine emblem for South Australia. The Victorians were a little bit peeved because they had to settle with the weedy sea dragon. I don't think it's a poor cousin. I think the weedy and the leafy are so significantly different from each other that... Um, you know, it's okay for Victoria to have the weedy, the very, very colourful fish that it is, and uh, the um, the leafy sea dragon that I uh, describe as a, a, a stretch limo seahorse in drag. <laughs> Are they only found in South Australia? Well, the leafy sea dragon extends all the way to Western Australia, like uh, Rottnest Island and Perth and, and areas like that that's flushed by the Lewin current. They're all along the Great Australian Bights, and they do extend occasionally into uh, Victoria, hence they would like to have claimed it as their own. The weedy sea dragon, now I'm not too sure how far north they go, but I have seen them uh, north of Sydney, and I've heard from anecdotal uh, stories that um, they do go a little further north. They may even get up as far as um, Nelson Bay and further but um, that I have yet to establish. Yeah, I know I've looked for them, but I haven't been able to find them myself. What is the difference between a leafy sea dragon and a weedy sea dragon? Well, colour is the essential difference because they've both got appendages. So if you can think of a, a seahorse, a typical seahorse, and you sort of stretch it out horizontally, and then everywhere that there is a sort of a little spine add a sprig of leaves onto it and you've got the leafy sea dragon. With the weedy, it's pretty much the same story except they've got a much deeper body Okay. and they are much more colourful. They've got bright oranges and, and brilliant iridescent yellow and, and blues and purples uh, and lots of spots on their uh, head and 
that color really is what catches your eye because they don't have anywhere near the number of appendages that the uh, the leafy sea dragon has got. Okay, beautiful. I know at um, Cabbage Tree Bay at Manly, they dive to see the sea dragons. Yes. Are they related to seahorses? Absolutely. Yeah, they're the same family, Signathidae. And what is so special about these animals? Well, I guess as with the story for sharks and uh, and other iconic species, when you talk about apex predators and removing them from uh, an environment, I think uh, the world standard is what happened at Yellowstone when the wolves were removed, the biodiversity disintegrated. And it wasn't until wolves were reintroduced that the grazing of the elk and the behaviour of the beavers and a whole host of other animals affected by the presence of the wolves was modified to the extent that plants that were being browsed down to uh, levels where they could not continue to grow flourished. And this is what we find with the apex predator story. Well, in the case of leafy sea dragons, weedy sea dragons and seahorses, if they are doing well, their needs are so particular that the environment must already be biodiverse and very healthy. So therefore they, like sharks and apex predators, can be used as representatives of very healthy ecosystems. If they're not there, something's wrong. You know, when you look at the total global situation, the land mass in the Northern Hemisphere is huge. And so too is the nutrient runoff into the oceans that are relatively small compared to the Southern Hemisphere. And because those nutrients are so um, algae blooming, you have this enormous biomass that's sustained by all of those nutrients and the algae that grows from it and the zooplankton and yada, yada, yada. You know that story. What it means in the Northern Hemisphere is you have a biomass of cod and flounder and a few iconic species, but you don't have lots of different species. Huge biomass, but not a lot of biodiversity. On the Southern Ocean and the Southern great australian bite we have one river that delivers nutrients and that's the murray river the mighty murray darling or as the aboriginals call it the buckinger yeah the buckinger the the bottom line is the buckinger can't supply nutrient for the entire south coast of the australian continent consequently it's a nutrient poor environment and in, when you've got a nutrient poor environment if a species is to survive, it's got to have the savvy to make relationships with other species that are really living on the edge of a knife. So we have an enormous biodiversity in the Southern Ocean. Absolutely 85% of it's found nowhere else on the planet compared to, say, the Barrier Reef. Only 15% of what's on the Barrier Reef is found nowhere else. It's shared with all the other tropical reefs around the world. But in the Southern Ocean, because it's such a nutrient-poor environment, the um, biodiversity, mostly the little things, you know, the worms and the, the, uh, the crustaceans and the stuff that sustains the bigger animals, the, the diversity is awesome. And, uh, and that is why I was so passionate about uh, developing 
not only Australia's only dedicated um, wet lab for uh, secondary students, but also to get um, uh, resources into every single school in South Australia so that marine education could wave the flag for endemism and biodiversity. Just as ordinary people, what can we do to protect them? The, the best way to answer that is to just take an interest in what's around you. I mean, we can do things absolutely every minute of every day that's going to help biodiversity and make the planet better than what it was when we were born into it. And that's as simple as, you know, reduce the litter, to uh, be accountable for what is it that what I'm doing this moment might impact somewhere else down the line. If people can think about what they do, then we're going to be better off all round. Um, you can take it to the next step and become educated, become an influencer, um, or you can just simply be average person just doing responsible things and, um, you know, just knowing that you're a good person for doing that. Are you optimistic about their future? Yes, I am. It was Sylvia Earle who um, said something quite poignant recently. She just wishes that she could continue diving in environments as they were before she was born or as she believes that they will be in generations to come because she, like I, am saddened by the state of play right now. Now, we are going through change. Obviously, global warming is happening. It is affecting behaviour. It is affecting um, environments. We really have stuffed things up in one generation, really. And um, I'm not going to point the finger as to who did it because it's a collective thing, but it's a collective thing to get it right, too. Well, where I would like to go, Tony, is about sharks. And I know you've got a passion for sharks. Well, I've got to begin with a story. And that story is north coast of Kangaroo Island. And I was doing my usual thing in the intertidal zone, looking for leafy sea dragons in the kelp, being very mindful that that ocean between the mainland Australia, South Australia and Kangaroo Island is a, a great white shark corridor. So you can imagine how I felt when I was just coming into the harbour after about two hours of snorkeling looking for sea dragons, coming into Penishaw and a pressure wave knocked me almost unconscious, and I dropped my camera and I was thinking to myself, what the? And what it ended up being uh, was uh, a female uh, dolphin that got between its baby and myself and basically stopped the baby from coming over to say hello. This is all behind my back. But what my mind is telling me, all right, this is it. My days are done. This is where I meet the big boy in grey suit. It was my one and only and fatal interaction with a white shark. And I, I thought about it after the event because really to have had that experience with dolphins was just mind blowing. I said I had to do something about my, uh, my fear of sharks because it was always there. I was always looking over my shoulder. And long story short, there are people, mentors that I met in Fiji initially and then in South Africa and then other places and most recently uh, Florida and the Bahamas. And these people taught me how to interact with sharks. And now, to be honest, current, you know, company accepted, 
Um, I, I prefer to be in the company of sharks because I find them um, far more predictable, far more trustworthy, and and they go, they they know the rules and they they work by the rules. I can't say that of most people I meet. I think we need to um, get a new fisheries minister here in Queensland because um, he, like a number of prominent politicians, and I put um, Donald Trump in that um, number as well as my local state member, is the, um, the, the most shark-fearing person that I know. It takes people time to, to understand sharks, to be courageous enough to go into bat for them and to advocate for them. And at the moment, we do not have the political will for that to happen. Now, that said, there has been enormous site-specific alternatives to drum lines and uh, shark nets in very recent times. And I'll amplify that by saying in uh, 2015, I was invited to go to uh, Bimini in the Bahamas to test two bracelet devices that were dismissed by university investigators here in Australia, more specifically Western Australia, as toys. Uh. Well, I thought they might be toys too, but I tested them with bull sharks in the Bahamas only because I've been looking for bull sharks here in Australia for two years and couldn't find water that was clear enough for me to film their interactions and their responses. So I go to Bimini where it's almost unlimited visibility and I had about a dozen bull sharks that I was working with there and I actually got in the water with them after I tested these devices and they were 100% effective. Now, I say that knowing that here we are, 2023, and although the government has got the data to show white shark and bull shark responses to even more recent innovations with um, electronic devices, they haven't got the full picture yet for tiger sharks. So we are still waiting for them to endorse that as a way of having personal protection. And I amplify this by saying we had a recent death down on the Gold Coast. It's the most heavily netted, heavily drumlined section of the entire coast of Queensland. And yet there was a death because a surfer was not being protected by baited drumlines and shark nets. Put that into the context of, okay, there were bait fish in the water. It was close to sundown. He was there with very few others. And there is guidelines as to when you should be in the water and when you should not. Yeah, no, I hear where you're coming from. I've had one experience with a shark that bumped into me and pushed me onto the other diver and it just went, wow, what the hell hit me? And what other issues have you been vocal about in your local community? The uh, Division 4 representative for um, the Sunshine Coast Council is a former mayor and friend, Jonah Tolley. At the moment, we have an iconic location called Point Cartwright. Uh, anybody who comes to the Sunshine Coast has probably been to Port Cartwright. You can sit on the, the top of the cliff there and watch whales, migratory birds, and people walking their dogs. And it's uh, the walking of the dogs that's become the issue because the breeding area that uh, is used by an extraordinarily rare eastern curlew oh, wow. are tiny little remnants amidst huge paddy fields in China. So because their breeding grounds are so diminished, there is a chance that in our lifetime they will become extinct. 
But I think China's on that job too. So they may well do something at their end of this sad, sad story to increase the chances of success. Bottom line is when these migratory birds come to rest anywhere, and that would be Point Cartwright as included, if a dog gets them to stop resting and take flight, then the precious little energy that they have got in storage for a migration north or south is being used unnecessarily. And the dog walkers just simply don't get it. And of course, the environmentalists have got their point of view, which doesn't just include migratory birds. There is a push at the moment to get the vegetation that's adjacent to and including the littoral zone revegetated to join a coastal uh, remnant forest. And that means areas where dogs are running around off leash uh, will in fact be revegetated. And again, the dog owners are not real happy about that. So we have got these local issues that I guess are a good example of how do we save the planet one little piece at a time. What is the biggest threat to the ocean at this particular time? Look, I don't think there's any other answer for that. It's just plain and simple, global warming. Okay. There's got to be a complete reset of all of the ecosystems. We know we're losing the coral reefs because of coral bleaching. That's a given. Are they all going to die? No, but they are not going to exist as they were when you and I were born. There is going to be wholesale changes in their structure, in their diversity and their distribution. Why? Because the coral cannot keep up with the rapid rate of acidification and the, uh, the warming. When you start messing with a massively important ecosystem like coral reefs and mangroves that are the heart and soul of warm water and temperate water biodiversity, you can't help but affect entire ecosystems. And then if you take sharks out of the picture, and we've lost most of them already, then those checks and balances end up with these so-called trophic cascades, where one species that would have been kept in check goes ballistic in numbers and it has a domino effect. And I saw this with my own eyes in Florida. Because sharks have been trophy hunted, killed and slaughtered in such numbers in Florida, there is a groper that was their normal food species that is now surviving to maturity in such numbers that they have virtually wiped out the surgeon fish, the tangs and the parrotfish that get rid of all of the algae that is growing over the reef. And now with them not doing their job and the fact that we've still got nutrients coming out of the catchments, the reefs in Florida are just a flood of green slime and algae on what used to be biodiverse coral reefs. So we've got a cascade effect. Yes. Happening all around the world. Absolutely. It's happening right here on the Sunshine Coast. Absolutely is. So what are the next projects that you will be involved with? I've got my heart and soul set on um, the governor of Queensland intervening with a very wrongful prosecution by Queensland Fisheries that's really shut me down. If I can overturn that as my major project, I would really like to be working with fisheries 
to share with them what I know about sharks and what I believe could have for the Brisbane uh, Olympics in, in, what is it, 2033 or 32, I can't remember. You know, we've got about a decade to work towards Australia being a place that the world will be watching and Queensland in particular is going to be under the spotlight. I would like us to have the very, very best shark mitigation strategies that are not going to have a disproportionately high number of unintended bycatch deaths of sharks, rays, whales, dolphins. That is unacceptable. Even as I speak, it's unacceptable the amount of bycatch that these drum lines and, and shark nets are catching when there are so many good alternatives. So I would like those good alternatives to be endorsed, to be reinforced and to be on public show for a world that will be watching. And as a catalyst to that, I would like to introduce sentient shark tourism because there's nothing like that here in Australia. You just can't do it. What is sentient shark tourism? Yeah, good question there, Tony. It's where humans are interacting with sharks and food is not the incentive. Food is not the reward. What is the reward, you ask? Well, the reward is hugs, kisses and cuddles and and stroking and physical interaction. I can't swear on a podcast, but people might say, no, you, you're just having a lend of me. Well, all I suggest is people can Google the most famous tiger shark in the world. Her name is Emma. I'll be catching up with her in February next year. When you were up at Port Stephens, did you visit the Irukandji Centre there? It's on the top of my list of places to go back to because one thing I can say about this trip, it was the first time I'd ever been to the area. It impressed me incredibly and I was given a high uh, recommendation to visit that centre, but we had to keep moving. Where was your favourite dive site in New South Wales? I think that's an easy one to say and I, I'm sure it will be eclipsed when I go back and do some more but Nelson Bay I fell in love with Nelson Bay there is about four sites uh, around the area that were just so colorful so biodiverse and so incredibly interesting um, I can't wait to get back the sponge garden around Nelson Bay are just spectacular and I'm used to color like that because South Australia doesn't have coral but it does have beautiful sponges most of them are on the ceiling of caves these gardens were all over the seafloor. I was just joined for most of my dives by these humongous blue groper. They were just so appreciative of the odd urchin that just happened to fall in front of them. Did you know that the blue groper in New South Wales is, you know how we have the fauna and flauna emblem? The blue groper is the leafy sea dragon for New South Wales. That's exactly right. I know this. Not many people do. Yeah, it's sad, isn't it? Can you name the one that's uh, in Queensland? No, I can't. Well, it's Amphiprion inquinidos, otherwise known as the Great Barrier Reef Clownfish, and I'm looking at them as I speak. They were bred when I was a teacher at Sunshine Coast Grammar School, and when I retired, nobody wanted to keep them, so they're home with me now. Oh, beautiful. Tell us about the, the blue devil fish that you've seen at Broughton Island. For one thing, it paraded like a, a Siamese fighting fish. It had its fins flared. It was up for absolutely immaculate display with its bright yellows and iridescent electric blues. And I had never seen one in the wild in my life. I knew what they were. I knew where to look for it. And I found it and I couldn't put in words how pleased I was that this normally cryptic shy animal was out there in full display under really strong lights in front of my camera. 
actually done research study on blue devils, but I have done the research on the southern blue devil. It was one of my undergraduate um, projects to to look at switching behaviours when food sources are swapped, how quickly do they do it. But this was an unexpected find, um, unexpected to the point where you you listen to people and you hear their stories. So, oh, I've got platypus on my property. Come and see them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You go and no show. And I, I had the same attitude to the Blue Devil, but to the credit of the people who told me the stories, they told me where to look. I went there to look, and I saw exactly what I was told that I should see. Well, I've been to the same spot where you have been, and I haven't seen it. So you are extremely lucky. Um, as a consequence of this discussion, I shall put it up on my Facebook dive care there tonight just because I can. Oh, fantastic. And Tony, can you talk about um, the old wives and the Moorish idol story that we talked about a little bit earlier? I've been diving in areas that I've never been in my life. I mean, I'm a diver of some 3,000 plus and long, long ago stopped keeping a logbook because my movies and, and videos are my logbook now. I thought it was just fascinating. There I was down south of Newcastle and I was filming old wives, which I know are a very, very special fish. They represent the only uh, example of their you know, kind. And I know them to be a Southern Ocean species. And there they were in Newcastle in quite large numbers. So they are cold water fish, but in amongst them were the tropical Moorish idol. And what was the name of the, the, the character in Nemo? Gil. Gil, Gil the Moorish idol. Pretty sad. I know that pretty quick, isn't it? <laughs> well done. Yeah. Anyway, um, the Moorish Idol was swimming and schooling with these old wives, not just accidentally. It was turning with them. It was interacting with them. And I found that fascinating because here we were so much further south than the Sunshine Coast, where the Moorish Idols are very common fish. It's a tropical fish. But down there, close to Sydney, it's not tropical. And yet I'm just wondering now because uh, the internet and, and Facebook and social media being as it is, I had some tanks um, tested recently because they won't test them here in Queensland if yeah. they're more than 25 years old. And, and I bought mine in the 19, early 1990s. <laughs> so my tanks went down to um, Jarvis Bay and the people from Jarvis Bay posted something just yesterday and it was Blind me down. It was old wives swimming with Moorish idols at Jarvis Bay. We might be able to blame Gil from that because he, he did escape, didn't he, into Sydney Harbour. And... He did. He did. But he's got mates. He's got mates now. Wow. So, uh, and it begged the question. This is why I had the leading question before we started this podcast. So I was asking you, do you know if there has ever been a record of the uh, Moorish idol getting further south than the um, New South Wales-Victorian border? Well, Social media is such that someone is going to answer that question. They will. They will, which is it's, which is good about social media. And Tony, yeah. what do you want to achieve in the next five years? Well, in the next five years, I want to be on talking terms with whoever is Minister for Fisheries. It might be me because I want to be Minister of Fisheries. <laughs> in Queensland? No, in Australia. Oh, there you go. At the moment, he's a bit of a bully. I actually went to a, a fundraiser, you know, these silent auctions yep. for Australia Zoo, the Wildlife Warriors. One of the prizes was to have absolute total attention of the fisheries minister 
at lunch at Parliament House. And my wife and I bidded on the silent auction. And you know what we got? Sunset with canopies at an organic camel farm. Oh, no. <laughs> Uh, so I, I guess I have to either wait for a new minister or um, wait on a successful intervention on the part of uh, the governor to overturn a very, very wrongful uh, court proceeding that they involved me in. And, um, you know, it's really sad because the, the fine overall was about $3,000, which is, is not a big fine. But at the end of the day... Um, what it caused me to do was give up all of my volunteering. And when you do the arithmetic, the $3,000 fine is just a tiny fraction of the lost uh, in-kind and, and voluntary hours that, that I would have been committing uh, in Queensland if they had just listened to the truth and heard the story. And it's a funny thing, you know, when you, you meet people, and I was talking to you about sharks, how they're more honest and trustworthy and predictable. Well, the guy who was the issuing officer for this uh, matter became a personal friend and he became embarrassed about his superiors wanting to go unrelentingly to a, a conviction. Um, he uh, congratulated me to my face for cutting a, a green turtle, a nesting-sized green turtle, out of one of the shark nets and reporting it within the hour. He said, I had a citizen's right to do that. Now, he doesn't know this, but... I'm not a paid up member or an activist with um, Sea Shepherd, but I am aware of what she, Sea Shepherds was doing. And I showed them how to use a painter's pole with a GoPro on the end to establish that 85% of the baited drum lines between Point Cartwright here where I live and Noosa's main beach were unbaited on the day that they were rebated. Let me get this straight, Tony, that you got fine for cutting a turtle out of a shark net. Is that correct? No, no, I got fined actually on a technicality. You know, I was saying earlier, these uh, marine emblems for Queensland are not very well known. Well, there was this wonderful school that I was uh, asked to uh, be a, a temp teacher at. Yes. And I saw their marine classroom. And I thought, oh my God, this is terrible. How can kids be possibly inspired with, with nothing to look at. So I voluntarily went out on a picture-perfect day like today and I collected by legal methods an anemone and some anemone fish because they're very common over there in a place I call the dead zone where two wave fronts meet. It gets very easily recruited by these young animals, but then when we get a storm, it's all destroyed. So I thought, oh, fair enough, and it's only shallow. So it was all caught legally using free diving method. But on the day, because it was a perfect day, I've been monitoring the trophic cascade, the unsustainably large number of turtles that are around the island now because of uh, the 40-year-old the shark that was caught on the drumline. So when I got back from doing that, I put on a, a near-empty scuba tank to go over to where I knew there was a large patch of anemones to put a camera down and just show the kids what the natural behaviour of these Queensland emblems was. Now, unfortunately for me, my dive flag started drifting. And not knowing where it drifted to, I collected everything that I had, my cameras, some nets, the fish and the what have you, and when I surfaced, fisheries patrol helped me recover my flag. Well, that was great. Thank you very much. 
But what they thought I was doing was using scuba, collecting marine oh. life for the black market. Oh, you're a poacher. I was a poacher, poacher. making oh. the black market. Yeah. Well, anyway, look, long story short, it's a comedy of errors and it has a history that goes back to uh, Australia Day 2003 when I was asked to reproduce something like what I had moved away from in South Australia because, believe it or not, when I was at Hallett Cove School, which is on a like just the edge of one of those significant places on the planet that shows where we were physically attached to Antarctica and the glacial striations. Perfect place to set up a marine uh, research teaching classroom. The only one of its kind in all of Australia that had live material for students to see the interactions between species in different representative habitats, right? Oh, that sounds fantastic. So that was known somehow, I don't know how, the people who employed me asked me to do the same. And I thought, oops, I'm here in Queensland, I better get some advice as to what I can and can't do because it's not South Australia. Well, I did not get a satisfactory answer. And it wasn't until day two of the trial that I learned the meaning of the word transship. Do you know what transship means? No. Well, nor did I. <laughs> but on the second day of the trial, I learned transship is when you are taking uh, something from place A to place B. And what I was doing is I was taking legally caught animals to put them into my vehicle on the beach back on the mainland, but I was wearing scuba at the time. Oh. So I was transshipping illegally because you cannot transship, hatch, or do anything with marine life if you're wearing an aqualung other than blow bubbles and take pictures. So there you go. Well, there you go. What I'd like to um, ask you next is about fishing free zones like national parks, protected areas. Is there anywhere that you would think would be needing more protecting at the moment than somewhere else? There's a place that I go more frequently than any other place. The place that got me in trouble, Manjimba Island. <laughs> <laughs> I think I died there more frequently than any other person on the planet. So I know the place pretty, pretty well. I've been there this week twice. Everything above the high water mark is totally protected. Why? Because there are the short-tailed shearwaters that breed there. And I guess we've got the eastern curlew that probably lands there because there's too many dogs at Point Cartwright. Munjimra Island is a conservation park. We've got the XHMS Brisbane, which is a, a marine life magnet. That's an exclusion zone as well, uh, which does beg the question, why am I collecting so much fishing line and lures and hooks and God knows what from the, uh, the various pieces of metal on the, uh, on the exclusion zone? I do believe that there is a case to be made to join the mainland mangrove littoral zone uh, conservation park with HMS Brisbane exclusion zone and have Manjimba Islands intertidal zone and fringing reefs as part of all of that. I think that would be a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. And you can bet your life that there would be a lot of opposition to that. How could we make that happen? Well, I've been getting to know um, Auntie Bridget Chili. I am aware that uh, the Gubby Gubby people um, have a matriarchal uh, association with their um, 
land and uh, in particular Old Woman Island or Munjimba Island, even before we met, she was already thinking very, very uh, positively about trying to get more protection for the island and the animals that are associated with it. It's one of those things where, in answer to your question, what am I wanting to do in the next five years? Well, chances are, if I can't change the conversation with the Minister of Fisheries, I can work with First Nation people to try and get a greater level of protection for the biodiversity around Manjimba Island. That would be a local positive piece of the puzzle that will help to save the planet. So many interesting topics, Tony. You're a wealth of knowledge and we need more time to go into these topics. It's been a pleasure talking to you this evening and I hope to have you on the show again soon. Thank you, mate. It's been wonderful to have the opportunity. You've been listening to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show.